Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. It's the spring of 1297. King Edward I of England, known as Longshanks, must have been feeling pretty confident. Smug even. The previous year, he had sacked the important Scottish town of Berwick, defeated and taken prisoner a large force of high-ranking Scottish nobles, and forced the rest to submit to his crown. And most seriously of all, he had ritually humiliated the Scottish king, John Balliol, by forcing him to beg forgiveness, be stripped of his royal vestments, and endure an English prison. Scotland was surely his. But Longshank's confidence was premature, because in May, a Scottish knight led a huge uprising among the common people and clans of Scotland. He has gone down in history as one of the most famous freedom fighters of all time, and shocked all of Europe when he routed a huge English army sent to crush him. Sources say he was seven feet tall and had the body of a giant. His sword, which still exists today, was longer than the average person was tall. I'm speaking, of course, of the legendary William Wallace. According to a 15th century poem written by Blind Harry, Wallace had butchered the English sheriff at Lanark in revenge for the killing of his beloved wife Marion. Another account closer to Wallace's time comes from the Scala Chronica by Thomas Gray. In this, he says a fight broke out at the sheriff's court. A girl, possibly Marion, helps Wallace escape, after which he returns with a band of men, kills the sheriff and sets buildings ablaze. Either way, the flames of those buildings grew into a fire which Longshanks himself would come to face. Welcome to William Wallace and the battles of Stirling Bridge and Falkirk. Wallace was joined in rebellion by several other leaders, like Andrew de Moray, who was as critical to Scotland's fight for independence as Wallace, but is far less well known. Wallace and Moray's rebellions were so successful and so popular that by September, northern and central Scotland were within their effective control. The Scottish nobles wouldn't support them though, so fearful were they of Edward's wrath. But that didn't bother either men. They had the support of the common folk, and clansmen flocked to their banners of resistance. Edward was incensed by the effrontery. Didn't the troublesome Scots, as he called them, know when they were beaten? In a rage, he decided to teach them a lesson once and for all. But he didn't want to get his hands dirty fighting a bunch of renegades and common riffraff. So he sent a large army north with orders to annihilate the rebellion and bring its leaders to him, dead or alive. Around 10,000 infantry and archers and some 300 of his famed and feared heavy cavalry should do the trick. Wallace, though, had known they would come, and knew exactly where they would come to. Stirling. Stirling was the only major route over the River Forth, 
which itself guarded the Scottish Highlands from southern incursions. Stirling, then, had always been the key to Scotland. If the English wanted to demonstrate their might, they'd have to cross Stirling Bridge first. On the 9th of September, William Wallace formed up his army on Abbey Craig, overlooking and dominating the crossing at Stirling Bridge. In the distance, English banners emerged, fluttering death in the autumn breeze. They were a blaze of colours, emblems and icons of the great English houses. Two in particular stood out, those of the commanders Edward had sent, the Earl of Surrey and Hugh de Cressingham, the English treasurer in Scotland. You can imagine how popular he was, a tax collector and English to boot. Ranged against this English host were just six or seven thousand Scots, mostly infantry. Surrey and Cressingham each thought very little of these upstarts, led by nothing more than a thug and a bandit, and refused some advice by a local Scottish knight to send a detachment to a ford upstream in order to outflank them. Instead, they sent messengers to Wallace demanding surrender. But according to the chronicler Walter of Guisborough, Wallace responded, We are not here to make peace, but to do battle to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. Let them come on, and we shall prove this to their very beards. So come on they did. But it was slow and laborious, the entire English army crossing the single, narrow Stirling Bridge, which could take only three men or two horses abreast at the same time. But the Scots watched and waited patiently. The English, accustomed to chivalric virtues, naively expected to be allowed to cross and form up in the large bow of land encompassed by the Forth before joining battle. How Wallace must have laughed! When perhaps 2,000 of the English army had crossed and filled the bow, with a haunting hoot, William Wallace suddenly hurled the Scots downhill in a highland charge, sweeping into the stunned English who had been complacently reforming their units. Warhammers swung, broadswords scythed, iron maces crushed. Scottish sword song was bright that day, and the ferocity of the attack sent the English reeling backwards into other men still trying to cross the bridge. Still more were pushed towards the river and marshland, where they struggled to stay alive in the cloying, sucking mud. Now, though, the Scottish flank was vulnerable, and the English heavy horse, which had already crossed the river, readied for a massive counter-strike. The crushingly armed and armoured heavy cavalry of medieval Europe were the tanks of their day. Massed together in a line, they would blitzkrieg their way through most infantry formations as if they were children, tossing them aside like toys and crushing them underfoot. But Wallace was ready for this too. At the crucial moment, he formed his spearmen into the now famous Shiltrons, circular formations of closely packed men armed with pikes and shields. 
they created huge hedges of razor-sharp spears, impenetrable to cavalry as long as the formations held. The English knights, careful of their honour and still disdainful of the Scots, charged anyway. The result was exactly as you'd expect. Horses screamed as they were impaled on the pikes, and men thrown from saddles were quickly dispatched with a thousand blows. The English must have watched in disbelief as their heavy horse were annihilated. Aghast, the English began to back away against the riverbanks, and the Scots advanced in their impenetrable Shiltron hedges. The English archers on the far side of the river were too few and far between to make a dent on them, and they advanced mercilessly, unstoppably, into the English ranks. Here, men died by the thousands, crushed in the press, drowned in the river, or hacked and hammered to death by joyfully vengeful Scots. Surrey, who hadn't yet crossed with his half of the army, turned tail and ran, ordering the bridge to be destroyed in his wake and leaving his countrymen to their fate. That fate included Hugh de Cressingham, who now died in the gruesome melee. It's said that Wallace had Cressingham's corpse skinned and tanned, doling it out in little squares to his followers as keepsakes, and turning a full head-to-heel body length into a sword belt for himself. Stirling was a resounding victory for Scotland, and for William Wallace. Moray was mortally wounded during the battle, and died a few days later, but his contribution was never forgotten by Wallace, who himself was now declared guardian of Scotland. Against all odds, he had left some 5,000 English dead littering the fields surrounding Stirling Bridge, and had gone on to recapture Stirling Castle. It was a seismic shock for Longshanks. And even worse from his perspective, Wallace rapidly marched his jubilant men south and laid waste to northern England. Walter of Guisborough records that the Northumbrians were petrified with fear, and they evacuated their wives and children and all their household goods. The Lanacost Chronicle tells us that the Scots devastated the whole country, causing burnings, depredations and murders. Edward was dismayed, but not downhearted. He quickly disengaged from his wars in France, and by summer the following year, he was marching north at the head of an even larger and more capable English army, 15,000 strong, including some 2,500 cavalry. And Longshanks was no Surrey. He was an experienced and successful military commander, and he wouldn't make the same complacent mistakes again. Initially, Wallace moved his army back into Scotland and refused battle, preferring to let English supply problems whittle his opponents down. He knew Edward himself led the army, he knew it was a large force, and he knew it was full of battle-hardened veterans of wars in France. He knew, in short, that he was up against it. But on the 22nd of July, 1298, 
Edward caught up with Wallace's army at Falkirk, a small town on the road to Stirling that had developed around an old Roman fort. Finally, Wallace knew he couldn't run any longer. Wallace had around 6,000 men with him, including a 1,000 cavalry. He formed his infantry into four Shiltrons in a highly defensive position, with marsh and a stream ahead of him. He must have been hoping that the boggy ground would so tire and deter the English heavy horse that they would be easy prey to his pikemen by the time they reached them. And so it proved to be. The English knights could make no headway against the Shiltrons, and they were recalled by Edward when they lost 111 horses in one charge alone. But despite this, things were not at all promising for Wallace, and he must have known it. Other units of English knights had clashed with his cavalry and chased them off, before turning on the Scottish archers who were butchered. The Shiltrons now stood alone. Their impenetrability to cavalry relied on the dense packing of pikemen, but this greatest strength was also their greatest weakness. With enough well-placed archers armed with powerful bows, the Shiltrons were almost completely defenceless, and Edward knew it. He had brought with him crossbowmen from Gascony in France, some of the finest in Europe. And making their international debut were archers from Wales, carrying the longbow. The longbow would earn its true fame during the Hundred Years' War, when just a few hundred English longbowmen rained death upon the nobility of France at battles like Poitiers and Agincourt. Edward had known how effective the longbow was when he had faced it in his conquest of the Welsh 15 years earlier. Now he would use it for himself to devastating effect in Scotland. The Shiltrons were doomed. There was nothing to stop the English archers moving to within spitting distance, and the arrows and crossbow bolts came thick and fast, falling unseen to strike everywhere. Armour was like parchment to them and offered little protection. We know today that even modern bulletproof vests can be penetrated by arrows shot from longbows. Scotsmen in their hundreds began to fall, helpless under the incessant downpour of sharpened steel. And as the ranks thinned, so too did the crucial hedge of spears, and into the gaps rushed Edward's knights. Almost instantly, the Shiltrons collapsed, their once cohesive formations dissolving into thousands of men running for their lives. The English cavalry made light work of them, trampling men under hooves and caving in the backs of their heads with sword and mace. The slaughter was great until the survivors lost themselves in a nearby forest. Around 2,000 Scots had been massacred. Wallace escaped but was ashamed and resigned his guardianship. While he continued a guerrilla war against the English for a few more years yet, his reputation as a general was in tatters and he was never again able to attract large numbers of men. Edward, though, 
continued campaigning to subdue the rest of rebellious Scotland and never gave up trying to capture William Wallace, who he had come to hate. By 1304, the last major stronghold left holding out against Longshanks was Stirling Castle. To crush this last impudent resistance, Longshanks ordered the construction of the world's largest ever trebuchet, which he named Warwolf. According to historians, it took three months for five master carpenters and 49 other labourers to build, and could hurl 300-pound rocks 200 metres. Even just seeing the beast prompted the garrison to finally and urgently surrender. But Longshanks was not to be robbed of his fun, and wanted to see his new fearsome toy in action. He sent the garrison back inside the castle and told them he would accept their surrender when he was ready. And then he allowed Warwolf to savage Stirling Castle. Even better for Edward, the following year saw the eventual capture of William Wallace in 1305. It was a Scottish knight loyal to Edward who handed Wallace over, and he was transported in chains to London where he faced trial for treason. Wallace responded, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject. On the 23rd of August 1305, William Wallace was stripped and dragged naked through the streets of London by a horse. At Elms in Smithfield, he was hanged, drawn and quartered, a typically brutal execution of medieval Europe. If you're unfamiliar with it, it involved being hanged by the neck until almost dead, but not quite. Then the unfortunate victim is disemboweled while still alive, and their entrails burnt in front of them. Then they're beheaded, and finally the body is cut into four pieces. William Wallace had been savagely martyred for the cause of Scottish independence. Today, a plaque near the site of his execution features the words, I tell you the truth, sons. Freedom is what is best. Never live life like slaves. Wallace's death did not extinguish the flame of Scottish freedom. It only piled fuel around it. And now another leader would rise to take up Scotland's cause. Robert the Bruce. Inspired by Wallace's stand and appalled by Edward's brutality, Robert the Bruce was about to become King of Scotland and lead his country to the greatest victory they had yet known. Join us next time for the legendary Battle of Bannockburn. Thanks for listening. See you then.